And so I don't know about you, but I'm so, I'm so fired up to be in the Word. Will you pull out your Bible this morning? And if you're like me, you're just, your mind is being blown away by the Gospel of Luke. I'm just loving this book. I'm loving what we're learning about Jesus. I'm so excited today to share with you what Luke wants us to see. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We want you to have a Bible there in your hands. <clears throat> Open that up. This morning, I got a message for you about the kind of change that can happen in your life when someone shows up who actually has the authority to make things happen. There's, there's a kind of person who, who, will, who will show up in your life, and this person actually has got authority. And when a person like that shows up sometimes... That can be the single greatest thing that can happen in your life. Someone who actually has the ability, the authority, the power to make changes, to make things begin to happen. Maybe you've experienced that. That's what Luke wants to show us today in the passage we'll look at. Luke chapter 4, will you turn there with me? We're going to near the end of the chapter. As I studied this week and as I meditated on this theme, this theme of authority, my mind kept going back to the story of a man named Oscar Schindler and the movie Schindler's List. You remember that movie? That's one of those movies I vowed I, I never want to see that movie again, all right? It's like the Passion of the Christ. You see it once, and then you're done. It was so good, but it was so intense. You know the story if you saw that movie. It's the story of this German businessman named Oscar Schindler and his famous list that became known as Schindler's List. And it was a list of names, 1,200 names of Jewish men and women in concentration camps, Auschwitz and otherwise, who he claimed he needed to run his armament factory just outside of these concentration camps. That list became a source of authority in his life that brought about the liberation of thousands of Jews who were spared from the gas chambers. It's an amazing story, an amazing story. You know, Oscar Schindler didn't set out to be a hero. In fact, he was, he was an opportunist. He was a businessman, and he inherited this, this business that was actually owned by Jews at the time. But as the Nazis started to bring about their change, they took all these Jewish companies, and they Germanized them and turned them over to the Germans. And Oscar Schindler got a hold of this business, and he had employed thousands of Jews at the time. And he, was, he, he wasn't even necessarily a compassionate guy, but what happened over time is his heart began to change, and as he saw how Jewish people were being treated, the torture, the suffering, he started to find himself finding ways to protect Jewish people and keep them under his employment. He actually, when, he, when his life ended, he died broke, totally alone in Germany, and he was a practical no-name, but... But he'll never be forgotten by that 1,200 Jews who remember that day. They remember the day. They've interviewed these different men and women who remember the day in the concentration camp when Oscar Schindler showed up with his list, a list that had been compiled with all of these names of people that he claimed he needed to run his factory. And it was because of that list 
1,200 people were set free and spared. Amazing. Amazing. Have you ever thought about it? The be- Sometimes the very best thing, the greatest news that you could ever hear in your life is someone who's actually shown up with the authority to free you, to make a change, to make a difference. Amen? That's what Luke 4 is about. Can we look at it together? Will you open your Bible with me? Luke chapter 4. Our passage today will take us to the end of this chapter, starting in verse 31. Let's read it together. Here's what Luke wants to tell us next about Jesus. Luke says, He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Hello. We're going to talk about it. All right. We'll talk about that. A spirit of an unclean demon. Interesting. What would happen? The spirit, he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst... He came out of him, having done him no harm, and they were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. In a minute, we'll finish the rest, but... What you've already seen, hopefully you've already seen, is it's very obvious what the theme of this passage is. It's authority, right? We see this because Luke actually, he, he, he brackets this story in the synagogue with these two statements about this authority that Christ had. It was so obvious in the way he taught. That was the first thing that people noticed. Man. This person teaches with authority like nothing we've ever seen before. What was it? They're, they're sitting there and they're, they've heard many great teachers, surely. But Jesus shows up and there's something about the way he would communicate that was so authoritative that the people were mesmerized by it. You know, in that day, rabbis, the way they would teach, they would always quote other authority sources. So they would never claim that they had any authority. They would always talk about, well, I got this from this other rabbi and he got it from that rabbi, or I got this from reading this commentary or this other writing. So all the authority in that day was authority that came from somewhere else. But Jesus didn't teach like that. He didn't quote anybody. He didn't cite anybody. There were no footnotes in his sermon manuscript. Jesus stood up there and he just talked with this inherent authority that he had. Amazing. 
I've told you about this, but I have in my Bible, I carry in my Bible, and it's in here every Sunday, a little three-by-five card. And this is my reminder. And I read it every time before I preach. And this little three-by-five card, it says, a preacher without a Bible is a preacher without authority. And I just have that in my Bible. Just a little reminder. It keeps me aware of the fact that if I have any authority when I'm communicating, it's a borrowed authority. Amen? That's good news for you, Ruth. <laughs> it's good news. It's a borrowed authority. I know this. There will never come a day where I'll stand up here and try to say anything in my own authority. It will always come from the word of Christ. Our daughter, Lauren, called us from Seattle. She's up there for her freshman year at Seattle Pacific. And she called me and she said, Dad, I'm having such a hard time finding a church. I go to all these churches and every church I go to, they, the pastor never says, okay, church, open your Bible. I just cannot find a church. And I'm like, Lauren, I'm so, this is such good news. <laughs> She's like, really? I'm like, no, this is great because this tells me we've ruined you here, okay? We've ruined you here at Riverwest because you have this expectation that a pastor would actually stand up and say, I have no inherent authority. All of my authority comes from God's word and from Christ. But that's not how Jesus spoke because Jesus is the word of God the living word of God. His mouth opens and the heart and the wisdom and the truth and the power of the word of God comes out of his soul. Amazing. Amazing. And then the very next thing that happens, the last thing that happens is Luke says it again. Look at verse 36. He says, they were, they were blown away by the authority and the power of his word which is a little bit different. First, they were, they were blown away by the authority of his teaching, but then it, it, Luke focuses in and, and says, what's happening here is that when Jesus, when a word would come out of his mouth, it was so powerful. It had so much authority that it would cause demonic forces to flee. So amazing. Unbelievable. So this is the theme, okay? This is our theme this morning. We're gonna talk about the authority of Christ. And what I'm hoping, my goal by the end is you'll realize this is some of the best news I've ever heard. Boy, if there's something I need in my life, I need someone to show up who's actually got some authority, right? What is it? What is the authority of Christ? Have you ever thought about it? What do we mean when we talk about the authority of Jesus? Maybe I should begin with a definition. <clears throat> Here's a way to think about it. The authority of Christ is his divine right to act with power as God's special agent in this world. Just think about that for a minute. Let me say that again. The authority of Christ is his divine right to act with power power in this world as God's agent. So it's not like human authority at all. And that's really good news because 
In fact, what we're going to discover today is we, we'll have a lot of obstacles to jump over as we start thinking about authority, because many of us have had negative experiences with authority, right? And because we're postmoderns, we have an authority problem. Anyway, it's inherent. <laughs> postmoderns, we don't like authority, right? And there's a good reason for that. You look around, you read the news, you study history, and what do you see? Just a never-ending, never-ending examples of abuses of authority, power-mongering, people who use authority to do wickedness, Right? And so many of us, the word authority is kind of like a trigger. We hear that word and we don't think anything positive. We immediately think negative, especially younger people. I pulled out my phone last night and I said, hey, Siri, because this is how we learn stuff now. I said, "Mm, hey, Siri, I talked to my phone for like five minutes. It was an amazing moment. I said, which generation has the biggest problem with authority? You're probably all thinking of a word. Millennials. That's what came up. It was like 10 articles about millennials. And I read it. And I was like, why do we always pounce on the millennials, man? It's like so vogue to pounce on millennials. But that, that was what came up. But as I actually studied it, what I realized is millennials are not the only generation that have a problem with authority. You know, it actually goes back a little further than that. You remember the phrase question authority? That was you boomers. All right. <clears throat> it's your fault. <laughs> And you mixed LSD with it, okay? So you've got nothing to say to the millennials. (laughs) Oh, man. I love millennials. I'm going to hang a sign that says, millennials, welcome here. We love you, okay? This is a safe space, all right? (laughs) Oh, gosh. But uh, we all have a problem with authority. We hear the word and we're like, whoa, we we immediately think this could go bad, but not with Jesus. Wait a minute. What if what we're talking about is somebody who has the divine right to do things with authority? How would that change things? Would you want that person entering into your life to start to make some changes? I know I would. I know I would. So what I want to do is I want to just, I want to take a minute. We're going to talk about authority, but to do that, I want to talk about a couple of words here that are in 36. Look at verse 36, and I want to talk about these two words, power and authority. They're two different Greek words, and we want to understand both of them. The word that comes through their power is the word dunamis, which sounds like dynamite, right? And that word just, it's, it's um, I mean, it, all, it, it always gets translated power, but it, what it means is it means the, uh, the, 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 the power to make something happen. It's like a force. It's like an explosive source of energy that can just, it can get things done. And then the other word, which comes through as our word authority, is the Greek word exousia or exousia, that word sometimes gets translated power too, but it's not really, the best translation is the word authority. And what that word means is it means the right or the privilege to get to use power in the first place. It's really amazing. Think about this for just a minute. What if you have a person who has a lot of power, but they don't have the right to use it? You know what we call that kind of a person? A tyrant right? 
And what if you have a person who has the right to use power, but they don't have any power over the situation? We call that person the parent of a toddler, okay? It's like, I got the right to do this, but I'm totally out of control here, right? But what would happen if you had a person who had both the power and the right to put it to use, and that right came from a divine place? Great things would happen. And that's exactly what happens. What Luke wants to show us now is he's going to show us Jesus starting to fulfill all of the promises that he had made in his sermon that he preached. Remember that sermon last week in Nazareth? Jesus makes all these claims about what he's going to do, and they're big claims. And the reader's wondering, I wonder how this is actually going to get carried out. And then the very next, the very next moment we see Jesus showing up and this authority being displayed. It's so amazing. I'll tell you something. As I've studied Luke, this has been probably the most significant study I've ever done in my life. Luke is so profound. It's so connected. You know what I mean by that? I'm studying it, and you know those commercials where people's heads explode? You know what I'm talking about? That happens to me spiritually every Saturday in my office. There's spiritual brains all over the, the walls because I'm in there and I'm studying and it's like the book, every sentence is calculated. Nothing's haphazard. Luke doesn't just say something that he hasn't thought about. Even what we're going to study here this, today, this picture of the authority of Christ, you, you, you have to see this scene connected to the scene that just happened before it. In fact, the entire chapter of of Luke 4 is all connected. And what I did is I, I'm a visual learner, so actually what I thought I'd do is I made a little picture that will show you how Luke 4 hangs together, okay? Um, And so don't write this down. Can you even see that? Are those words really small? Okay. The millennials can see it. They have really good eyesight. But the rest of you are on your own. Talk to a millennial. They'll tell you what's down there at the bottom. But, um, okay, here's how Luke 4 hangs together. There's three frames in Luke. The first frame is... Um, is chapter is verses one through thirteen. That's the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately he's led into the wilderness. He goes toe to toe with the devil. The devil tempts him, and what you might remember is that the second temptation, the devil takes him to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms, and he says, "I will give you the authority over all this." And the reader's thinking. Does Jesus need the devil to give him authority? Does Jesus need the devil to give him the divine right to exert power in the world? And then Jesus passes that test. He moves on. In the very next frame, which is verses 14 to 30, Jesus is now filled with the power of the Spirit, and he walks into Nazareth, and he preaches this sermon that's so controversial. We studied it last week that when he's done preaching, the crowd rises up and they try to murder him, And in that sermon, Jesus keeps repeating this phrase, I've come to preach good news about liberty, about people being released from oppression and bondage. That's the heart of the good news, Jesus says. 
that people would be freed, that something powerful would happen. Then in the very next frame, now we see Jesus enter into Capernaum. And what does he begin to do? He begins to display authority and power, and he begins rebuking things. Amazing. Amazing. And this is why the very first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Luke is an exorcism. It's an exorcism. Do you know what that word means? It means he casts out a demon. (laughs) And that's intense. And we modern people in the West are not familiar with this kind of language, many of us. Maybe, maybe you've struggled with this. You thought, I love the Bible. I love what I hear about Jesus. I show up. But then the pastor starts talking about demons and angels, and I'm not used to that. And maybe if, if you're being honest, you're thinking, you, you guys don't really believe that people were possessed by demons, do you? Because now we know, now we're modern science and stuff. We know that was just probably, it was people who in the ancients, they were, you know, they believed in that kind of stuff, but we don't believe in that stuff anymore, right? Now we know we have diagnoses for these things. And so it could be, it could be a little bit difficult to read a passage like this and go, wait a minute, it seems like Luke is saying that this thing, this kind of stuff actually happened. Now, look, if you're, if you're struggling with it, what I want you to know is I totally get it. That's okay. This is a place for people who want to struggle with spiritual ideas, all right? You're welcome here. You and the millennials, you're all welcome here, okay? So let me, let me just say, <clears throat> let me point out a couple of observations that I think will help you wrap your head around demons, if you're thinking, this is, is this just superstition? These are just primitive ideas. Here's a couple of things that I've, I've thought about as I studied this passage. The first is this. You don't have to write these down. These are not my sermon points. I just want you to think about these. The people that day were just as astonished by this as you or I would have been. Think about that. This is really important. It's not like they were just like, oh, yeah, totally. This is, this is commonplace. We see this every time we go to the synagogue. That was not their experience. They were like, whoa, what just happened? They were, they were caught off guard. They were startled. And the reason I'm telling you this is that this can protect us from doing what C.S. Lewis called chronological arrogance where from our position, we sort of look back on people in history and we look down on them and go, they were so, you know, they were ignorant and stuff. But we would have responded to this exactly the way they did. They were amazed by what happened, okay? Here's the second observation. Jesus interacts with this demon as if it was a very real being. So it's not like... Luke is presenting this as a metaphor for evil or something. Any attempt to try to translate this as it's metaphorical. It it didn't really happen. It It was a picture of a deeper spiritual reality. The problem with that is that when you read the actual account, Jesus is shown to be 
having a conversation with an actual spiritual being. And so at the end of the day, this always kind of comes back to what do I think about Jesus and what do I think about the scriptures? Do I trust the scriptures? And do I trust Jesus? And let me tell you something. I want you to know that I trust Jesus. And I trust his word. His word has never let me down. Not one time in my entire life has the word of God let me down. So I'm going to always be inclined to take this passage at its word. And what that means is that there's, there is something real going on here. There is this sense that people can be taken over, oppressed by spiritual forces, which Luke calls the spirit of an unclean demon. And all that language means is it just means a spirit who has turned itself against God and God's objectives. Okay, here's one, just one final observation. Demon possession is not being presented here as some kind of primitive medical diagnosis. Okay, Luke was a doctor, and he understood the difference between actual illnesses, and in just a minute, Jesus is just going to cure people who are sick and ill. Luke understands there's a difference between just being ill or sick and someone who actually is under the influence of a, of a spirit of darkness. And Luke knows this. But, he, okay, herein lies the point. Luke has the wisdom to realize sometimes the only explanation for certain things that are happening is a spiritual one. Think about this. Could it be that the culture that's act, actually ignorant is ours? Because we refuse sometimes to see the very cause of certain things, which is spiritual. Is it possible 200 years from now, other cultures will look back on our culture and go, oh man, they were too, they just wrote off spiritual sickness. Talk to anyone in Alcoholics Anonymous and they'll tell you, the, you know what the root of my disease is? It's spiritual, right? Amen. That's what Luke's doing here. And what happens in this story is that when Jesus walks into Capernaum, the first person in that city who actually recognizes who Jesus is, is a demon. Amazing. Isn't that interesting? Look at it. Verse 34. He walks into town. People are blown away by his authority, but no one actually figures out who he is except for this spirit. And this spirit knows his name, verse 34. He recognizes, you're Jesus of Nazareth. He knows where Jesus is from. <laughs> he knows, wait a minute, <clears throat> you're the Holy One of God. You're God's agent in this world. It's the spirit that figures that out. And not only that, it's the spirit who is the first to recognize you actually have the right to start turning over tables and making things happen. And you actually have the authority to cast me out. Wow. That's why the spirit says, have you come to destroy us? The answer to that is, Yes, <laughs> that's the answer. <clears throat> um, and the spirit knows this. He recognizes this person's different. This is a whole different kind of authority. We're not playing games anymore. 
This person has come. This person is God's anointed. This person's filled with the Holy Spirit. This person is the Christ. And this person has the authority to start taking back territory from the devil. And he's come to do it, apparently, because he rebukes. Okay, <clears throat> try to imagine that you were in the room just for a minute with me. You're sitting in the synagogue, and you see this go down, okay? This is not the typical day at church, all right? Jesus is up there, he's teaching, and suddenly there's this interchange with something spiritually evil, and Jesus rebukes. And the words that come out of his mouth, he says, be silent, and come out of him. And you watch it happen, and you see immediately, it's like, it's like a domino. Immediately, the person is freed. What would that have been like? That kind of authority. Amazing. You know who was sitting in the room in that moment? Simon Peter was sitting there. This was his hometown. He's sitting in that room. He's watching this go down. And what we're going to discover in one verse is that Simon Peter knows that his mother-in-law is at home and she is under the oppression of a fever. And Simon Peter's going, wait a minute, somebody has shown up with some real power. So what will happen next? Let's keep reading. So we're, we left off at verse 37 there. Uh, what I, real quick, what I want to tell you is that what, what we're going to now see is Luke is going to change the tone a little bit. He wants to show us another part of the heart of Christ. He's, he's shown us this authority that comes from Jesus' identity, but there's more to this. Luke says the, thing, the next thing you need to see is that Jesus is this tender-hearted, compassionate, like perfectly loving Messiah. So his authority is always meted out with compassionate love, which is really good news, right? And here's how it happens. So Jesus arose, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. That's Peter. Jesus will change his name later. This is Peter. He entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. Will you just put your finger on that word ill? I, I wish the ESV had done a better job with this. That word in the Greek is not the word ill like a sickness. It's the word oppressed. It, it, um, the word means to be held captive by something, which is so interesting because what Luke is saying here is he's saying just in the same way that a demon could hold something captive, this outsider who's against God's purposes, in a broken, fallen world where death and illness and sickness was never, never supposed to be a part of this world, fevers are seen as these oppressive forces that hold people captive. Isn't that interesting? And so what does Jesus do anytime there's something or someone there who's holding one of his children captive he, he, he does the same thing he did with the demon. He rebukes it. Isn't that interesting? Look at it. So this 
His mother-in-law was being oppressed with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. It's so interesting. We're going to talk in a minute about that word rebuke, but, but it's just not what you're expecting to rebuke a fever. Imagine you're Peter and Jesus stands over her and he says, fever, I rebuke you. Peter was probably thinking, that was not exactly what I had in mind. I was hoping for something else, Jesus. We don't typically rebuke fevers or sickness. I've been fighting a head cold all week, and people have been really kind, and they've said, I'm praying for you, and, you know, you should buy a humidifier. And <laughs> Have you tried emergency? Um, but no one has said, Adam, I rebuke that head cold. I rebuke it. You could. You can come up to me. It'd be really weird. It'd be an awkward moment in our relationship. But this is what Jesus does. <clears throat> he stands over that thing, and he rebukes it. Amazing. And then look what happens. He rebukes the fever, and it, it left her again. I wish it was a little better. You know what that word is? It's the word released. It's the exact same word that came up in the sermon last week. I've come to preach release from oppression. That's what I'm here to do. And he walks into Capernaum. He goes into Peter's house. He rebukes a fever, and the fever releases her just like the demon releases the man who's being oppressed. And immediately, she's healed. So amazing. So this whole story is connected. The whole thing is connected. What happens next? Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The sun sets, which means the Sabbath day is over, and now there are no longer any restrictions. People can move about, and they don't have to worry about the Sabbath restrictions. So the whole town knows this person, Jesus, is in town, and they all get up. It's like the DMV on Monday, okay? Everyone shows up. And they bring all, anyone who's sick, anyone who's got a, something, they bring them all. Just imagine that scene where Jesus is still in Peter's house. And the whole town shows up with sick and people who have fevers and people who are blind, anything. And there is Jesus. And he could have, what I love about this story is that Jesus could have just waved his hand over the crowd and said, you're all released. But that's not what he does. There's this beautiful, picture of the tender heart of Christ. And I want you to imagine you're there because that's part of the point of the story. You're there. And you're not just a member of a crowd. You have your moment where Jesus lays his hand on you. And I guarantee you there was emotion in his eyes and love and compassion tenderness, this attentiveness, what's, what's, what has you held down? And he has his moment with each person that goes out of his way to say this. Every one individual, Jesus was there with them. But it's authoritative because he's 
at times he's rebuking. And he's healing, and there's power, and it's beautiful, and it's God. It's God in the flesh who actually has the authority and the power to make things happen. So beautiful. How about you? What would it be like in your life? And then in the very next verse, what does Luke tell us? We get this word rebuke again. Did you see this? Demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. They know who this person is. But he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. It's so interesting. Jesus rebukes a demon. Jesus rebukes a fever. And then Jesus begins rebuking these demons. It's repeated over and over and over. It's such an interesting word. Rebuke. I don't know about you, I hear it and I immediately think of a negative connotation. Have you ever been rebuked before? It's not fun, typically, right? I feel like I've been rebuked a lot in my life. I don't like it. And a lot of times, people who are rebuking, they're not, they don't always do it in love. But we have to remember, this is Jesus the Christ. His rebuke is loving. I like to think of it, it's like God's authoritative no to anything that holds one of God's children in captivity. Jesus says, no, I rebuke you. In the Greek, the word's amazing. The word actually means, I'm going to get this right, okay? It means to put something in its proper place. It means to assign value that's fitting to the situation. So think about that. When, when, when Jesus rebukes, he's saying, You're, you have stepped out of your proper order in this whole arrangement, and I have come to set you straight. I rebuke you. So Jesus rebukes a demon because this demon thinks that it has more power to control than it does. And Jesus said, this, nope, this is out of order. I rebuke you. He rebukes a fever because in God's ideal, perfect world, there would be no fever, death, illness. And so he rebukes it. Later, Jesus will stand on the front of a boat as waves and wind crash in. And remember what he does? What does Jesus do to the storm? What does he do? He rebukes a storm. And then in the final episode, Peter will challenge Jesus and say, you're not going to go to a cross and suffer and die. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him in love. No, no, no. I need to put you in your place. You've, this is out of order. The rebuke of Jesus is God's loving no to anything that would prevent you from freedom and joy and knowing God, anything that would hold you captive, anything that would prevent you from having eternal spiritual life. When Jesus the Christ shows up, he has the authority in love to say, there's no way. And so he rebukes. Can I give you a word of advice as your pastor? Do not resent the rebuke of Jesus. 
if it shows up in your life. Don't resent it. Can I tell you something? This is the best thing that could ever happen to you. This is good news. Imagine you are Peter's mother-in-law and you are in captivity. And Jesus enters your life and he stands over you. What would be the thing that he would identify that's holding you down? Maybe it's not a fever. This is not what has you in bondage. What is it in your life? What would be the thing? Jesus walks into the household of your life and he looks over your life and he, and he realizes, I need to rebuke something. What would be the thing that he would say, no, this will no longer hold down my kid. What would it be? Don't resent it. It's really good news. He loves you deeply. He wants to set you free. And he's actually got the right to do it. He's got the authority and he's got the power. And that's why we worship Jesus. Amen? That's why we worship Jesus. Because he's got the authority to start making changes in God's world as a God's agent. And he's changed your life. I know it. He's changed mine. And can I suggest something today? He's here now by the power of his spirit. And maybe you didn't come to church realizing you were going to get rebuked. But, <laughs> but, uh, but because it's Jesus, it's good news. That's what the pastor told me. It's really good. It's really, really good news. Even if you didn't see this coming, this is so good. Okay, so let's finish the story, and then we'll take communion together. Um, this is what Luke says to finish this account in verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So in other words, what's happening here is God is saying, I have sent my son to take this good news everywhere. I want this to spread. I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want Christianity to be a local thing only. It's supposed to be a global thing, right? The people, they wake up and Jesus is gone. He's out in a desolate place. And what do they do? They run out <clears throat> to find him. They, like, they all rise up. It, it, it sounds a little bit like what happened in Nazareth. That one went a little different. <laughs> this one, they don't try to throw him off a cliff. They actually try to hold on to him. And they're like, Jesus, we don't want you to leave. But as you, as you start to enter into what's happening there, you begin to realize their motives are just as impure. They want a miracle man to stay in town. They want the miracles, not the Messiah. They want the pop and the fizzle and the display and all the beautiful healings. They don't necessarily want Jesus. And there's a difference. And I love this. And so Jesus says, no, no, no. This is not about those miracles. 
Miracles are just a sign. You know that every single person that he healed that day eventually died? The miracles are not the point. They're great, but the only purpose of the miracles is for people to realize this person actually has the authority to get stuff done. You know what the real miracle is? We're about to celebrate it as we go to the table. Let me tell you what the miracle is. This authoritative Christ, Messiah, Holy One, he actually kept going. He walked into Jerusalem. People spit in his face. They whipped him. They humiliated him. They put a crown on his brow. They made fun of him. They nailed him to a cross. You know what the miracle is? The one person who had the authority to not let that happen willingly walked into that knowing this is the way to set people free because the real enemy is our bondage to sin. And so the miracle is Jesus died and rose again. And every time we come to the table, we, as a church family, we say, thank you, God, for the miracle. Thank you for the life that we have in Christ. And we'll do that again this morning as we worship. We bow your heads with me and let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you sent Christ with the authority, with with the right, and with the power to begin to release people from bondage. And we're here today because you've set us free. We are free, and we love you, and we say thank you for that. And we recognize, Lord, that it's, it's because of not just the authority of Christ, not just the power of Christ, but the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in our place. And so we don't come to the table today just to engage in a spiritual ritual. We come because we believe that, Jesus, you gave your body for us. You allowed your blood to be spilled to bring about a new way, a new covenant, a new way of relating to you, of knowing you, God. And we say thank you and we worship you. We give you our hearts and our lives. I want to pray this morning for anyone who's come who walked in the door under the oppression or the influence of something that's been preventing you from knowing God in Christ. If that's you, God loves you so much today. Jesus is with you, speaking a loving word of no to that thing, to cast it out. Don't resent him. Don't resist him. Turn to him in faith today. You can do it as you come to the table or as you pray.
But I pray for those, Lord. I pray for them who are in that place. Thank you, Father. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Love you, River West.